if you're an average voter and you haven't spent a lot of time with this, you're going to look at this and say, you know, what exactly are you asking for here? Pennsylvania's primary election is just a few days away, so this week we've got everything you need to know about the issues and candidates on the ballot, from the mayor's race and city council to the state Supreme Court. These are big courts with big power, and it matters who's on them. It's Friday, May 14th, and this is Pittsburgh Explainer. I'm your host, Liz Reed. First up, what's on the ballot in Pittsburgh? WESA's esteemed government and accountability editor, Chris Potter, is here. Hi, Chris. Hello, Liz. How you doing? Pretty good. I have to ask you, has the sparkle of Election Day faded for you after 20-some years of covering politics? <laughs> uh, that sort of presumes there was a sparkle to begin with. But yeah, no, my, my enthusiasm remains undiminished. Let's put it that way. Okay, so I I know you've been focused on City of Pittsburgh elections. We've had a lot of coverage about the mayoral contest between incumbent Bill Peduto, State Representative Ed Ganey, retired police officer Tony Moreno, and community member Mike Thompson. Is there anything left to say that hasn't already been said? I mean, I certainly hope so. Otherwise, I'm dusting off my resume um, this weekend. Yeah, I mean, I I think think your point is is well taken that we're sort of at that stage in the campaign where... The candidates have sort of fleshed out their sort of visions for governing, right? And and so you've got uh, Bill Peduto saying, look, I've been a progressive reformer here. There's work to be done on things like racial equity and affordable housing, but I've, I've begun to chart a course. Just let me see it through for another term. And then on the other hand, you've got, you know, Ed Ganey kind of saying, you know, look, uh, the mayor just hasn't gotten done in eight years. It's, he's not going to get it done another four. Let's time to give somebody else a chance. So, so those, those kind of contours have been laid out. I think we're at that stage in the campaign now where the campaign is about the campaign. Um, so there have been a lot of arguments in, in recent days, for example, about negative attacks. Uh, Ed Ganey earlier this week uh, held a press conference um, symbolically located at the um, Fred Rogers Memorial um, to talk about, how, you know, it's, it's not such a great day in the neighborhood because, you know, Bill Peduto is, is airing these mean ads about me. Whereas you've got Peduto saying, you know, let's let's be honest here. Let's look at, you know, how much money Ed Ganey has gotten from these from unions that have interests in fracking and so on and so forth. So there's there's been a lot of that kind of stuff at this point is is, is the sort of argument about about how we've argued. And, uh, you know, it's just sort of the personal attacks. This is about the time where where most normal human beings start really feeling like they're just ready to vote and be done with this thing. Also notable this week, the Post-Gazette endorsed Ed Ganey. Were you surprised by that? I I, I wasn't uh, for a couple of reasons. One, nothing the Post-Gazette editorial page ever does surprises me anymore. And two, I mean, I think that, you know, I think what people close to the mayor will tell you is that there's been a long history, maybe animosity is too strong a word, but but there's been a long sort of a long history of tension between the mayor and and the and the Post Gazette's publisher um, and the paper. So I wasn't terribly shocked to see that. And that's not to say there you know there aren't arguments to be made for either of these candidates, some of which are found in that editorial. But no, I, I wasn't particularly shocked. And you know I saw the Ganey folks. You know some people with Ganey kind of trumpeting the editorial. I mean I think the problem is is that. 10 years ago, that endorsement might have meant more, but this is the same editorial page that brought us the famed notorious reason as racism editorial, sort of justifying Donald Trump's racial rhetoric. You know, so I, so if you're going to attach a lot of attention to that, you kind of have to put that other stuff into the memory hole a little bit. Um, and I just think, you know, newspaper endorsements haven't been particularly meaningful in driving votes for a long time. And um, it's, it's hard for me to believe that this one is significantly going to change the landscape. Okay, what about Thompson and Moreno? What role have they played in this race? Yeah, yeah. so this has been interesting is watching these two guys. I mean, Mike Thompson, Uber driver, like a, a ride-sharing driver from Oakland, 
other than having maybe the best line of any debate in this uh, season, I don't know that he's contributed much. That line being uh, Bill Perdue was decrying hashtag politics on a debate on WPXI this past weekend. And Mike Thompson basically said, you know, if you're that upset about hashtag politics, you need to spend less time on Twitter, um, which, which is frankly a pretty good line, I think, as even uh, as even people in the Peduto camp would acknowledge. I, probably the more interesting person, the more significant one is going to be Tony Moreno. He's a retired police officer. He was actually the first guy to declare his intention in the, to enter this campaign way back in 1919. In, in 1919, yeah. Um, in 2019, it's the, Spanish, the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu had hit, um, and, and he just jumped right in. Um, so, so at any rate, um, to, uh, Moreno is is an interesting character. Um, he has in the past he sort of he sort of served on people's radars for having tweeted some pro Trump statements in the past. Uh, we reported that he had been a Republican for about a year or so before running. He said at one point he'd run for mayor as a Republican. He has been the person in the debates who has called out both uh, both Mayor Peduto and uh, Ed Ganey as sort of part of a political power structure. He's pointed out that they used to be allies. And so he sort of lumped them into this category together of sort of status quo candidates. I will say this here, um, and I haven't said it publicly because I, this is about a feeling. Uh, it's about sort of rumors and things like that. But do not be surprised if Tony Moreno, who I don't expect to win the Democratic nomination, uh, still ends up on the ballot uh, in the fall. Because a thing that can happen that people don't realize is you can have a write-in campaign, even if you're running as a Democrat, you can have a write-in campaign on the Republican side of the ballot. And if you get the most signatures and if you clear a fairly low bar for the minimum number of signatures, you can be the candidate even if you ran and lost on the Democratic side. Uh, Steve Zappala did this a couple years ago, the district attorney. He ran and won on the Democratic side, but he also had a write-in campaign on the Republican side. So essentially he was running against himself uh, in the fall. It is possible. And I would not be surprised at all if you see something very similar with Tony Moreno. Republicans have been doing this quite a bit lately is instead of putting candidates on the primary, they do write-ins and get their folks on in November. It's a kind of stealth strategy. But interestingly, because he's he's also running as a Democrat, it's a stealth strategy where he's also gotten to be in a lot of debates and stuff like that. So he's gotten a lot of name recognition if he's able to get himself written on there. Uh, and again, I don't... I can't say that I know for a fact that that's going to happen, but it would not surprise me at all. Um, we may be hearing more from him down the road. All right. Pivoting to city council, who's running? What are the issues? Yeah. So we basically have two competitive uh, primary races in city council, city council district two and four. City council district two is uh, sort of the West End area held currently by Teresa Kale Smith, um, who's council's president. She's facing a challenge uh, from, a, from a young guy named uh, Jacob Williamson, uh, who moved to the district a couple years ago. In District 4, uh, Anthony Coghill uh, is running against Bethany Cameron, who had been an aide for his predecessor, Natalia Rudiak. Both of these races are really kind of, these districts are kind of similar. Uh, these are South Hills, West End. These are places that in their way, are quintessentially Pittsburgh. I, I like them both. But if you were to come to Pittsburgh from somewhere else, you probably wouldn't spend a heck of a lot of time there. Um, they tend to be sort of working class communities. Um, they've got great stuff going on, but they don't they don't necessarily have the same kind of sizzle that other parts of town do. And as a result, both of these races are kind of being waged along similar lines. There's there's an argument in both of these places that we're kind of the forgotten parts of Pittsburgh. We don't get the investment of other places. The East End in particular is always kind of a class anxiety or animosity there. Tony Coghill, the incumbent in District 4, you know, ran on that very platform, and now it's sort of being used against him. You've been in office for four years. You haven't brought us the resources and investment that we need. 
need. All right. Finally, to the ballot initiative that would ban no-knock warrants. Who's behind that initiative? What's the argument? So, yeah, uh, the, the, the folks behind it are the Alliance for Police Accountability in particular, uh, which is a longstanding advocacy group here. Um, and more generally, I think, a sort of progressive movement that's very interested in criminal justice reform. And the idea here is that, as we saw in Louisville, Kentucky last year with Breonna Taylor, that there is one of the most tragic things that can and does happen is police officers straging raids often um, with drug warrants uh, late at night uh, without proper notification of the people inside and somebody gets shot or killed, which is, of course, exactly what happened to Breonna Taylor, her boyfriend, um, and police uh, engaged in gunfire. There's dispute about whether the police properly announced their visit or not. Um, so what this what this measure really does is it says city of Pittsburgh police officers must uh, knock and announce their presence at a door and wait at least 15 seconds before they go in. Um, there are also some rules about turning on their body cameras and wearing um, uniforms or, or clearly identifying themselves as police officers visually. But really, the bill is about this 15-second knock and announce. And the idea is you give people time to, to realize who's at the door, and it, and it lowers the, the danger of police storming in and somebody being, being killed because they don't know what's going on. What does the opposition say? There's not, you know, there's not really opposition to this bill per se. The, the general response from government uh, officials is, you know, we already do this. Generally speaking, our SWAT raids and things like that, they do knock and announce and often for a lot more than 15 seconds. Um, so this isn't really necessary. Some people have pointed out, including the district attorney, you know, we talk about no-knock warrants. And as far as I can tell, no-knock warrants uh, are about as common as like ivory-billed woodpeckers. You kind of hear about them, but nobody I know has ever seen one. State law doesn't really allow a judge to say, do not, you know, you can go in without announcing yourself. There's just not like a, that kind of warrant doesn't exist. It's, it's possible that a judge could, you know, sort of create a bespoke warrant that, that allowed for that, but it doesn't seem to really happen. The real danger is just that police don't announce. And, and, and I think the most interesting criticism of this bill that I heard um, was from a lawyer named Maggie Coleman, who actually represented the plaintiffs in a couple of lawsuits against the city that are often cited um, by the supporters of this bill as the kind of thing they want to stop. These were SWAT raids gone wrong. One was in the, in Brighton Heights, and the cops basically were raiding an apartment, and then they also knocked down, you know, they also kind of barged through a different apartment's door because they got confused and they scared the heck out of the family that was in there. There's another situation in Carrick, sort of even murkier. And what she said to me is, I am not sure that if this bill, if these rules had existed back when those cases happened, that would have changed anything. I mean, one of the things she said is, look, 15 seconds, these raids happen at, you know, six o'clock in the morning, late at night, people are in bed. Think about if you suddenly heard police shouting on your doorstep at 6 a.m., whether 15 seconds would be enough for you, you know, to, to, to figure out what was going on. Um, and, and her point, as others have made, is that a lot of the rules about knocking and announcing are, are already set forward in state law. There's actually really strong um, case law from the state Supreme Court on down on this stuff. Pennsylvania actually has more protections than the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution does when it comes to sort of securing your privacy. So the argument is really, this isn't necessary. But that's not like an argument that really motivates people to go out and, you know, oppose something. Um, and so you really have not heard much squawking from law enforcement or from the city. Chris, thanks so much for your reporting. Uh, it's always good to be with you. We'll be right back after a quick break. NPR has been around for 50 years, but we're already looking ahead to the next 50. The big stories, the news that's coming next. Public Radio will be here for it all, thanks to you. Happy 50th, NPR. 
We're Pittsburgh's NPR news station, 90.5 WESA, streaming at WESA.FM. Now to Allegheny County races and WESA reporter Anlee Herring. Hi, Anlee. Hi, thanks for having me. What races will you be watching on election night? Well, because Allegheny County government is a focus of mine, there are a couple things I've been reporting on. First, there is one contested primary for county council. There will be a a few more matchups in the general election in November. But next Tuesday, West Mifflin Democrat Bob Macy will face a challenge from White Oak resident Stephen Singer. Macy has been on council for 15 years, and he's one of the most conservative Democrats. Just one example, last month he voted against an independent police review board, which council ended up approving anyway. But because of votes like that, Macy's become a bit of a target for progressives, so they're hoping that Singer can replace him. Singer is an English teacher at Steel Valley Middle School in Munhall, and one of his big issues is to increase county funding for the Community College of Allegheny County, CCAC. The election likely is an uphill battle for Singer because his district, which covers communities in the Mon Valley, is pretty conservative. I mean, it went ever so slightly for Donald Trump in the last two presidential elections. But as far as county council is concerned, uh, that is the race to watch next week. There will also be a countywide ballot question that will ask voters to restrict the use of solitary confinement at the Allegheny County Jail. This measure defines solitary confinement as keeping an incarcerated person in a cell for more than 20 hours a day. It would ban that practice for the most part, although there would be exceptions for facility-wide lockdowns or to ensure the safety of people housed at the jail. But even in those emergency situations, the warden would be required to document why isolation is necessary. And uh, to my understanding, that does not happen currently, not in any public way. Who's behind this ballot initiative? There's a whole constellation of grassroots activist organizations that gathered signatures to get this item on the ballot. The Alliance for Police Accountability has led the charge, but some other groups that are involved include Pennsylvania United, New Voices, PGH, and SEIU Healthcare, PA. What have they said about why this is needed? Prolonged isolation is known to cause real psychological damage. It's a well-documented phenomenon, and the ballot measure supporters say that the county jail uses the tactic as punishment, including against people with psychiatric conditions who are especially vulnerable. In fact, there's a federal lawsuit pending right now that makes exactly these accusations. Jail officials deny using solitary as punishment, um, although they they do say that they use a tactic that they call segregation, and that essentially is a policy where they will isolate people who pose a threat to others or themselves or who interfere with the operation of the jail. The supporters of this ballot measure say that's really a distinction without a difference They also say that's not an accurate characterization of practices at the jail, and they base that upon accounts of people who have actually been detained at the 
facility. But that all being said, county officials, jail officials, they haven't taken a position on the ballot initiative one way or the other. They say that would be inappropriate. They don't say why, but if you think about it, if this thing passes, they'll be tasked with carrying it out. Is there anyone campaigning in opposition to this ballot measure? There hasn't been any organized opposition, and there's no real critical mass of dissenters. I mean, like I said, the the county and jail officials themselves haven't even taken an actual position on the issue. Anli, thanks for your reporting. Thank you. We'll be back with more after one more quick break. The Confluence goes beyond the headlines to introduce you to innovators and difference makers in the community and to engage in conversations about issues impacting our region, from education to social justice to government accountability. Join us for The Confluence, where the news comes together Monday through Thursday mornings at 9 on 90.5 WESA. Now zooming out to the whole state of Pennsylvania, we're joined now by WHYY's Katie Meyer. Hi, Katie. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so the courts the courts. As a voter, these feel by far like the most opaque races. With with legislative and executive offices, I feel like you sort of know what you're going to get the way the campaigns are run. With ju- judicial races, I feel really clueless as to where people stand. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but I mean, the big one is that we have this sort of, uh, I would say, quasi-political system for electing justices um, on all of our, you know, big three appellate courts and then the lower courts as well. So these are partisan elections, you know, statewide partisan elections where the judges run as, you know, a member of a party, Republican or Democrat, you can run as a third party, but none are this year. So they, they ally themselves with the party, they have to raise money but they also can't say how they would rule on any specific cases. So like for these big hot button issues, like, I don't know, the election, these people who are running, they can't say how, what they would have done in those cases. We can only just look at their, you know, records on cases if they've been part of any. So that's part of it. I mean, and again, they also, I said they can fundraise, but the judges themselves, they can't really know what money they're getting. You know, they have to have it all go through their campaign. They can't solicit donations. directly themselves. So I I think factors like that make it a little bit difficult to understand where somebody really stands, even though they are running in, again, a a partisan way. You've reported, though, that these races are actually really important and we we should pay attention to them. Why? Totally. I mean, so let's talk about maybe the, the state Supreme Court. This is the highest court in Pennsylvania. So pretty much any high profile case especially if it gets appealed more than once, it's going to end up in the state Supreme Court. And, and all three of the courts. So we have, you know, just if anybody's not familiar, um, we have the Commonwealth Court and then the Superior Court and then the Supreme Court. And then below those, we have um, the Common Pleas Courts. And then in Philly and Pittsburgh, we have municipal courts as well. So all of those, I mean, they're all elected positions. They're all important. That is, you know, where your problems are heard in Pennsylvania. And when you get up to, like, for instance, the Supreme Court, these elections and the judges that, you know, make these decisions, um, they have huge impact on state policy, on sometimes federal policy. Um, Two of the big cases that I often point to are one from last year, uh, the state Supreme Court, which is controlled by Democrats right now. They gave an extra three days for absentee ballots to be accepted in Pennsylvania as long as the ballots were mailed by 
the deadline, um, the existing deadline. And that was because we were having huge mail delays. There was a pandemic. It was a really, really sort of convoluted, complicated election. And so they made this kind of emergency decision. Highly controversial. That led to a ton of the litigation that we saw and a lot of the Republican, frankly, fear-mongering about the validity of the election. So that was one thing, again, just a highly partisan issue. And then a couple of years ago, you guys will remember, they redrew the congressional maps. Uh, the justices, again, this was the Democratic court. They ruled that the congressional districts in Pennsylvania were gerrymandered to favor Republicans unconstitutionally. They ordered the legislature to redraw the map. The legislature took too long. They said they didn't have enough time. The court hadn't given them time. And the court redrew the map themselves. And it went from being a very big Republican majority in Pennsylvania's congressional delegation to nine and nine, totally even split. So that was, you know, just a hugely wide ranging implication for the entire country. I mean, it was soon after that that Democrats took back the House. So, um, you know, again, these are these are big courts with big power and it matters who's on them. Then how do people figure out who to vote for in a primary when you're you know, your choices are people from the party that you're registered with? Like, how do people figure out who within their party shares their values? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. We have done our best, all of us, you know, our, our three public media stations, WHYY, uh, WITF and WESA have worked together on some guides. So if you uh, want to get a good sense, uh, for instance, of like the top appellate courts, we have something called a voter guide to Pennsylvania's 2021 judicial elections that you can look at. So, you know, one of the things you can look at is like Bar Association, Pennsylvania Bar Association rankings, where the bar will say, these are the people that we recommend. They are good jurists. And that's the thing. I mean, I, I think you look for different things in judges than you do in a politician. So often it'll be less about like, oh, this person believes that climate change is a big issue. It'll be less that and more, oh, this person says that they will rule with these values in mind. For instance, uh, Kevin Brobson, one of the favorites to win the GOP nomination for the Supreme Court, he said he's a he's a conservative jurist. He's a Republican. He's running as a Republican. But when he says he's a conservative jurist, what he means is that he's going to be reluctant to overturn precedent. He uh, believes that um, the court should really, really rely on existing law, existing jurisprudence, and not improvise. And uh, Maria McLaughlin, she's the likely Democratic candidate because she's running unopposed in the Democratic primary for that court. She has said, you know, her big thing is compassion. She wants to fully understand, you know, what a person or what uh, a party's uh, sort of experience is going into court. She's a Superior Court Justice now. Robson's a Commonwealth Court Justice. So, I mean, these uh, different words that they use, they can give you a general sense of how these people are going to rule. And then you can also look at their, their previous uh, rulings that they've made. And if you, you know, look at the guides that we've done online because there's too much to get through in this podcast. But, uh, you know, we tried to go through and sort of give a general sense of how these judges operate. You mentioned a couple of um, Supreme Court people that are running for Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Who else is running and and what's at stake? Like what issues might we see come before the the high court? Sure. So, um, yeah. So the ones that I had mentioned, Maria McLaughlin, she's a Philly Democrat. She's been on the Superior Court since 2017. Um, and she's running unopposed for the Democratic nomination. Then the Republican who's endorsed by the party is Kevin Brabson. He's a Harrisburg guy, a Republican who uh, has been on the Commonwealth Court since 2010. 
Uh, then we also have Paula Patrick. She's a Philly Republican. She's uh, on the uh, Court of Common Pleas. She's been there since 2003. Um, she just notably uh, was invited to be on this QAnon um, podcast recently. There was a guy that was running it that she knows, apparently. She says she was not going to be on that podcast, but that's uh, you know been sort of a controversial thing in her candidacy. And then we have Patricia McCullough. She's from your neck of the woods, a Pittsburgh Republican. Um, she's been a Commonwealth Court judge. Actually, uh, her, her husband, it's this complicated thing, but he recently went to prison. She, uh, he, he used to be an Allegheny County Council member. But um, anyway, so those are the candidates. Uh, it looks like Brobson and again, um, McLaughlin are gonna be like maybe the two most formidable. But again, we gotta get through this Republican primary to see. What's at stake in this election? I mean, you mentioned the the court has a Democratic majority. What is at stake? What what are the issues that might come up before the high court in the coming years? Yeah, great question. I mean, so always kind of difficult to look ahead, but uh, we've seen a lot of election litigation in the past. We've seen a lot of litigation over you know gerrymandering, which I think is going to be one of the ones that we look at. Um, our legislature, our state legislature, has to redraw the House and Senate and congressional maps within the next couple of years. And so those decisions almost invariably end up in the court. And so whichever party, for instance, controls the court tends to, and I don't want to say it's like they always rule in a partisan fashion, but that does inform, you know, how they rule. And in this case, Democrats are going to control the court. There's no question. Republicans are in a very small minority right now. They have been since they lost control of the court in 2015. The best they can do is hold the line because a Republican judge is the one retiring. So until 2025, we really can't expect that to change unless something like very unexpected happens. But yeah, I would say redistricting is a big one to be watching. Um, again, these these uh, big tasks that the legislature often has trouble with, they often, often end up in the court. Katie, thanks so much for your reporting. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Pennsylvanians will also be asked to vote on ballot questions that could drastically impact the governor's powers. WESA's Sam Dunklaw is here to explain more. Hi, Sam. Hey, Liz. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing okay. There are three constitutional amendment questions on the ballot. The first two are about executive emergency powers. And is it just me or is the wording really confusing? No, Liz, it's not just you. The, the wording is a little bit confusing. I mean, let, let's just take one of the ballot questions here. I'm going to read it word for word, at least part of it. Shall the Pennsylvania Constitution be amended to change existing law so that a disaster emergency declaration will automatically expire after 21 days, regardless of the severity of the emergency, unless the General Assembly takes action to extend the disaster emergency? So I'm not even all the way through that. That's five or six lines long. And all it's really asking is whether or not the length of time of a current disaster declaration should be shortened to 21 days, because Liz, right now it's 90 days. Uh, a governor can declare a state of emergency for any number of reasons for 90 days. And the intent of this constitutional amendment is to change that length of time uh, to 21 days. But if you're an average voter and you haven't spent a lot of time with this, um, you haven't been following the news very closely or haven't read uh, editorials or uh, uh, voting roundups uh, that any number of news stations have done, you're going to look at this and say, you know, what exactly are you asking for here? Especially if you're working through your primary ballot, uh, checking the names off of uh, various candidates that are going to be on the ballot. By the time you get to this, you're going to potentially want to just <laughs> move on. And, and the charge by folks like uh, the Senate Republicans, uh, by groups like the Commonwealth Foundation, 
are, are that these ballot questions were intentionally written that way, that they would be a little bit confusing, full of uh, charged language like in another uh, one of these uh, ballot questions. There's the words unilaterally terminate, phrases like regardless of the severity, uh, phrases that are intentionally, or at least so they say, charged to make a voter think a certain way about this. What has the Department of State said in response to that? Uh, they, you know, they, they haven't heard a, a direct response from the Department of State or from uh, Governor Wolf himself. And you, you can probably understand why at least Governor Wolf himself doesn't really want to talk about this. I mean, the, both of these constitutional amendments uh, are, are talking about his emergency power, uh, the, the power that he has pushed out as an executive during this this emergency. And also, it's, it's a very contentious issue uh, depending on what the voting block is. So the Department of State and others have taken a different tack and have said, you know, regardless of how these questions are written, folks should really just keep emergency powers the way that they are, because look at all the benefits that they've given us. Uh, the Department of Health, for example, did a presser just last week uh, saying that, uh, look at how fast we were able to get more uh, nurses and licensed healthcare professionals into healthcare settings to help deal with the surge of COVID patients. We only would have been able to do that because of what they're terming flexible disaster declarations, the amount of time that the governor is allowed to um, assert emergency authority gave departments like the Department of Health and others the flexibility to be able to uh, respond quickly and, and put resources, personnel where they were needed. Um, and so their argument is it doesn't really matter so much how these were worded or what they're asking. It's better to just keep things as they are because uh, clearly, Pennsylvanians experienced the benefit, the way that we exercised power during the emergency. OK, so you spelled out what the first one says in, in plain language. What is the second one asking? The second one is asking uh, whether or not the legislature should be allowed to cancel or extend uh, an emergency declaration without the governor's authority. Now, this is the big this is the big difference between what is currently allowed in law. And I've spoken to a number of folks on this. Uh, the Democrats in the legislature are saying, look, we're already allowed to do this. The legislature can already vote to overturn a disaster declaration by a simple majority. All they have to do is just pass what's called a concurrent resolution. Uh, the difference is, is that the governor uh, gets to weigh in on that same resolution. They send it to his desk uh, and he can either approve it, sign it into law or uh, veto it. And at that point, if the legislature wants to move forward in canceling or modifying you know, that emergency declaration in any way, uh, they have to take a two-thirds vote. And in the very divided Pennsylvania legislature, it's very difficult to muster a two-thirds vote for, for anything, much less something uh, as contentious as uh, changing a disaster declaration in the middle of, of you know, a pandemic, for example. If voters vote this up, my understanding and the understanding of the attorney general and others is that the legislature would be able to pass that same concurrent resolution to cancel, modify an emergency declaration, and the governor would play no part. So it would essentially act like a normal resolution would. Why do Republicans say these constitutional amendments are necessary? Here's what they're going for uh, in their line of argument. They say that the GOP-controlled state legislature has not had a good enough seat at the table, a large enough seat at the table in making important decisions about uh, the course of the pandemic and how Pennsylvania has responded to it. Uh, they would have liked to be at the table more, they say, when the governor decided to designate certain businesses essential and certain businesses non-essential, when 
um, mitigation orders like mask wearing, social distancing, the closure of uh, businesses like restaurants to in-person service, they would have liked to have chatted about that more um, in those early days of the pandemic. And they would have liked to have chatted with the governor a little bit more um, as those same mitigations went on for weeks and months on end. Now, the Democrats have painted a little bit different of a story. They say that the governor's office has been communicative uh, to them in particular. And uh, they point to the governor's numerous press conferences, data drops, and others that kept the public informed about why a decision was being made and what the basis of that decision was, uh, that uh, cases were rising in certain places and falling in others, and so we're going to institute these uh, mitigations in accordance with that. But uh, the Republicans and their allies that uh, have insisted that that wasn't good enough. The legislature, the people's voice, as they've continually called themselves, Uh, should have had an advanced notice about those things. They should have had more detailed data than the public did so that that way they could answer the phones in their various district offices and tell people, hey, this is why we're doing this, um, and this has been the conversation that we've had with the governors. And so they say, voters, please pass these two uh, constitutional amendments so that we can force uh, the current governor and any future administration to come to the table and work more cooperatively with the legislature should we face an emergency like this again. The third proposed constitutional amendment asks about barring racial and ethnic discrimination. That wasn't already prohibited in Pennsylvania? So it it already is, uh, Liz, uh, you know, in, in statute. The federal government, you know, also bars racial and ethnic discrimination as well. Uh, The difference here, this is really more ceremonial from what I've gathered. Uh, This would simply enshrine that same protection in Pennsylvania's Constitution, uh, which right now it isn't. You know, in in practice, uh, one cannot discriminate uh, a person based on racial uh, or ethnic background in all but the state's highest law. So if this is passed, that the Pennsylvania Constitution would simply say, look, you cannot under any circumstance, bar somebody uh, from accessing a service from equal protection of the law or anything like that based on their uh, racial or ethnic background. This is something that from everybody that I've talked to is enjoying wide bipartisan support. Uh, It's just another way uh, to enshrine that same protection in Pennsylvania's constitution so that uh, it could never be changed or amended. I see. Now, there was supposed to be a fourth question on the ballot this year. Remind us what happened with that. Yeah. So that question dealt with or was going to deal with whether or not uh, survivors of childhood sexual abuse should get another two years to sue their abusers if their cases had expired. Uh, So the legislature had passed a, a regular constitutional amendment in a past session and They were getting ready to pass it again, as is the requirement under the Constitution. The trouble was the former Secretary of State, Kathy Bookfar, uh, admitted that her office had neglected to advertise that constitutional amendment, which is a requirement uh, as well. And so if you don't advertise a constitutional amendment, you're not able to put it on the ballot legally. So that stalled that entire process. Uh, The legislature had then decided to try uh, an emergency constitutional amendment process where they'd simply have to pass the same amendment uh, allowing survivors of sexual abuse more time to sue one time through the chamber, and then it would need to be advertised uh, within 30 days 
of uh, of it passing, and then it could have gotten on the ballot. Trouble was that idea faced some opposition uh, among important Republicans who questioned whether or not the ability for childhood sexual abuse survivors to sue, it, whether that qualifies as an emergency. Was there some immediate threat uh, to the Commonwealth if something like that was allowed? And of course, uh, stakeholders and supporters made their argument for that, but ultimately that that effort sort of stalled out. And so instead, supporters have thrown their weight behind a statutory change, uh, just simply changing Pennsylvania state law to allow that extra time to sue. And right now, uh, that's sitting in the Senate, Liz. Uh, we don't know if or when that's going to move, uh, but advocates have uh, taken a strong stance uh, in asking the Senate uh, to move it forward through this session. Sam, thanks so much for your time. Liz, thanks. Appreciate it. That's our show for this week. Pittsburgh Explainer is produced by Katie Blackley and edited by Lucy Perkins. If you want more election coverage, we've rounded up all the best stories from WESA and our partners across the state. Just go to WESA.FM explainer and click on this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Let's talk next week. 